Good morning, it's great to be with you and it's great to be continuing our series looking through the book of Philippians together today. And today we're looking at Philippians chapter 2. So let's read from verse 1 of Philippians chapter 2. Paul writes, Is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Any comfort from his love? Any fellowship together in the Spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? Then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another and working together with one mind and purpose. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honour and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Dear friends, you always followed in my instructions when I was with you, and now that I'm away, it's even more important. Work hard to show the results of your salvation, obeying God with a deep reverence and fear. For God is working in you, giving you the desire and power to do what pleases him. Do everything without complaining and arguing, so that no one can criticise you. Live clean, innocent lives as children of God, shining like bright lights in a world full of crooked and perverse people. Hold firmly to the word of life. Then on the day of Christ's return, I'll be proud that I did not run the race in vain and that my work was not useless. This incredible passage, we're just going to divide it up into four sections as we work through it this morning. The first section is the call for us to be united. The second section is the incredible example of Jesus. The third section is God's response to Jesus's acts. And the final section is our response. So first of all then, this call in the first few verses for unity. What we see here is, um, you know, Paul is appealing to the church to love one another, to work together and to be of one mind and one purpose, to be essentially fully united, looking out for one another's interests. And all I want to say on this is just that at the moment, with what we're all going through, um, with the lockdown and how long it's going on for and the challenges that we're all facing with it, there's never been a more important time for us to put this stuff into practice. You know, our relationships are so important and we need to protect them in the way that we are with one another. It's really important for us to be humble, to be gentle with one another. When we can't have that face-to-face interaction, when we can't spend as much time with one another as we did in the past, it's really important for us to be so soft in the way we handle one another in all of our interactions um, and keep our relationships really precious. And so I want to encourage us that these words can really uh, help us to stay on track and to keep united. And also, of course, because we're, you know, even though we're so far apart, even though we're not physically together, we can still be united. Nothing, nothing has changed. 
in our identity as Jesus's people, as our identity as the bride of Christ, and being having been reconciled to God and reconciled to one another by what Jesus has done. Nothing's changed in that. So we have that position, that status, if you like, of unity. And what we need to do is to preserve it. So that's the first thing here, is to preserve our unity and to look out for one another's interests. And just quickly, I just want to say again, thank you for all of the support that you're giving uh, to me and Anna and our family at the moment um, at the challenging time that we're going through. And I just want to say that it shows this. You have been looking after our interests amazingly well and we feel so so blessed and so refreshed by all the support that you've given us. Uh, the practical support and the love and the messages and the care and the prayers and all the different ways you're expressing it. It really is, you know, in a way I'm proud of, of, of you and I'm proud of the church for the response because you're showing this in action. So thank you. So we move on to the second section, which is this incredible section that talks about the attitude of Christ. And essentially what we're given here is an insight into Jesus's actual motivation. You know, we know the story of what he did in coming and coming from heaven to earth, becoming a man, living the life he lived, going to the cross, rising from the dead by God's power and ascending back to heaven. We know that from the story of the Bible and from the Gospels. But what we're given an insight into here is the actual motivation behind why Jesus did it. What was his attitude in doing it? What was the mind of Christ? And that's what we see. Even though he was God, he somehow chose not to be like God, not to live out his divine privileges, but instead, look at the words it uses to describe, humble, slave, servant, obedient. These were the attitudes that Jesus took on in order to show us not only the way to live, the way that, that, that he wants us to live, but also to achieve for us that incredible salvation from our sin. And I think there's a lot for us in this, so I'm gonna spend a little bit of the time on this section, because what this shows to us is, is there's a real contrast here between um, what Jesus models and what we see in our society and what often we see in our own hearts as well. Okay, so in, in our own hearts and our own attitudes, often what we see is, is not a selfless, not an others-focused attitude, but often a more selfish attitude. And you know, often in the New Testament, Paul does this in a couple of his letters, he compares Jesus with Adam. Adam, the first human being, um, the story is there in Genesis 1 to 3, you can read all about it there. Adam was, in many ways, uh, God's son, you know, made in image of God, given incredible jurisdiction and, and, and authority over the Garden of Eden, given a special job to do by God. Now, Jesus, God's son, sent to earth, given special uh, job to do by God and with a divine identity as one of the Godhead. And what we see is Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, even though he was God. Adam did see equality with God as something to be grasped. 
like fruit from the tree. Adam went for the fruit that he'd been told not to go for, precisely because it would make him like God. Precisely because it would give him the knowledge and power. And then when he did that act, of course, there came the response. There came the casting out of the garden. There came the fall of humanity. And so every single human being that has been born since Adam, except Jesus and until Jesus, has been born in the image of God, treasured, given a special job to do by God, but also with this heart that wants to be like God and wants to grasp onto equality with God. And we see it all the time in the world around us. We see people who essentially, most of us, before we knew Jesus, were living for ourselves. We're living as if we were God, as if we were the centre of the universe. And that's the indwelling sin in all of us that we need saving from. And so Jesus came with actually the divine right to grasp after equality with God because that's who he was and yet he chose to lay it down and he chose to take up his humble position and so all of his followers should do likewise. I mentioned also that society presents some obstacles for us and that is really because the culture that we live in and the, way, the whole way that our society is set up to operate is actually against, uh, in a sense, a downward way of living, in a, against a sort of humble, self-sacrificing way of living, and for a more selfish, climbing the ladder of success kind of way of living. And Henri Nguyen talks about this in his little book, The Selfless Way of Christ, um, Downward Mobility and the Spiritual Life. I read this in the summer of 2019, and I have to say it had a profound effect on me, and I'd really encourage you to pick up a copy and to read it. So he talks about the difference between upward mobility and downward mobility. I just want to read you a little bit of this. Our lives in this technological and highly competitive society are characterised by a pervasive drive for upward mobility. It's difficult for us even to imagine ourselves outside of this upwardly mobile lifestyle. Our whole way of living is structured around climbing the ladder of success and making it to the top our very sense of vitality is dependent upon being part of the upward pull and upon the joy provided by the rewards given on the way up. Our parents, teachers and friends impress upon us from the moment we are able to pick up the cues that it is our holy task to make it in this world. To be a real man or woman is to show that one cannot only survive the long competitive struggle for success but also come out victorious. Individuals as well as institutions tell us in a variety of ways that we must conquer knowledge and people. We must strive to wield influence and be successful. And even love itself is either something to be conquered or a reward for the victorious. I think that pretty accurately describes the society that we live in. And the, and the pull is inside it, all of us really. And that can be expressed in a number of ways. You know, sometimes we're driven, aren't we, by the desire to pass that exam, uh, obtain that job, obtain that promotion, uh, you know, progress within our career, find the perfect partner, buy a house, extend the house, get a bigger house, move to a nicer neighbourhood. All of these things we've almost made a virtue of. And yet these have got nothing to do with actually what Jesus calls us to. Listen to what Henri Nguyen goes on to say about downward mobility. 
The story of our salvation stands radically over and against the philosophy of upward mobility. The great paradox which scripture reveals to us is that real and total freedom is only found through downward mobility. The word of God came down to us and lived among us as a slave. The divine way is indeed the downward way. He goes on to talk about the example of Jesus, how he was a helpless child, a refugee in Egypt, an obedient adolescent, an inconspicuous adult, a, pro a preacher from Galilee followed by some simple fishermen, a man who ate with sinners and talked with strangers, as an outcast, a criminal, a threat to his people. He moved from power to powerlessness, from greatness to smallness, from success to failure, from strength to weakness, from glory to ignominy. The whole life of Jesus of Nazareth was a life in which all upward mobility was resisted. Guys, how are you living in a downwardly mobile way? Let's just think about that. What does it mean for you to live downwardly mobile? Remember, this is about having the attitude of Christ. Maybe it's transforming an attitude towards your work. You know, maybe it's more about going to work to serve. I know some people at the moment are working really hard and it's tough working from home and, and, and whatever situation you're in, but what about having a servant attitude towards that? Or what about your home situation? How can you be downwardly mobile yourself in your home situation? Maybe it's thinking of your time less as your own and giving it to those that are around you in your household that you're serving more. Maybe it's just about giving more of your time to God, you know, in spending time with him and less time towards entertainment or towards things that are more upwardly mobile, gravitating. Or maybe it's a bigger, more global decision about your life. Maybe it's thinking about, well, what, what are you going to do? How are you going to live? Who are you going to serve? The Jesus way is the downwardly mobile way. And I would love us as a church to grasp that more and more and put that more and more into practice in our everyday lives. So Jesus humbled himself in obedience to God and died on the cross. Then in verse 9 it says, Therefore God elevated him to the place of highest honour and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's amazing to see what God did in response to Jesus's sacrifice. Jesus's incredible model of obedience, Jesus laying down his divinity, God the Father responds by exalting him to the highest place. Truly now he is worthy. It's almost like he was already in the highest place in heaven and he came to earth. And when he came back to heaven, he was somehow in a higher place. Well, that's because the Bible teaches he, because of what he did, because of the fact that he laid his life down for the world, he then became worthy to receive this incredible honour. This is, in a sense, the principle being worked out of God opposing the proud, but giving grace to the humble. Of if we humble ourselves, God will lift us up. 
And so there's great encouragement in here for us. As we follow the example of Jesus, as we live the downwardly mobile life, as we stop grasping after things in the world, as we stop trying to build our own pedestals, and as we start laying our lives down for Jesus and for other people, then we can trust that God will lift us up. You know, if we humble ourselves and put ourselves in God's hands, then he will lift us up. Because that's what he does. He honours and lifts up those who humble themselves. And he's done this in the ultimate way here with Jesus. So we can trust God to do it. Sometimes, um, I don't know if you feel this, but sometimes you just feel like you've got to fight your corner. You know, you've got to fight for your rights. But Jesus didn't do that. That's the whole point. It says in Matthew 12, it picks up on the prophecy from the Old Testament. It says, you know, Jesus is the one who, he didn't even raise his voice in the street. You know, he didn't even snap a bruised reed or put out a smouldering wick. And yet he's the one to bring justice to the nations. How do you bring justice to the nations? Surely you've got to fight. Surely you've got to make a noise. No, the Jesus way is the way of downward mobility, laying our lives down. So we can lay our lives down and not fight for our rights because God will lift us up in due course. Also, of course, this section sets a wonderful uh, context for us, a context of incredible hope as we think about the future. At the moment, none of us can predict the future. And the future, perhaps, you know, doesn't look so bright as maybe it did a couple of years ago. And it's really hard. Um, one of my daughters said to me recently, Dad, I've been praying and I've asked God to show me when coronavirus is going to go away. And I sat her down and essentially I talked her through this. <laughs> You know, I said, look, the, the bigger picture here is that Jesus is the Lord who's been exalted. He is the Lord on the throne. Every knee is going to bow before him. And so if we're walking with him, if we're following him, if we're in his hands, we're in the best possible place. And there's an amazing hope for the future because Jesus is going to come and be Lord. Jesus is going to show himself and every knee is going to bow before him. And he's good and he's wonderful and he's worthy of it. And this, this perspective gives us great hope and sustains us at times like this. And we need that right now, don't we? So finally, the last section really, Paul goes on to give some instructions to the church, almost in the light of this glorious story that we've been looking at, how are we to live? And it says, it's four things, work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Do not complain or argue. Live clean and innocent lives and shine like stars and then hold firmly to God's word. And these are all things that we can do. I love this phrase about working out our salvation with fear and trembling. You know, the, we, the, what Jesus has done is given us salvation. We have an assurance that we will be in heaven with him, that we will be fully saved now and forever for all of our sins. And we are free from our sin. Hallelujah. But it's not something we ever become blasé about. It's something that we remain humble and reverent in our attitude towards God about. It says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But it's also the continuation of wisdom. You know, our society is obsessed with things like intelligence, IQ, or maybe EQ, emotional intelligence. Well, what about, I would say, FQ? Where's your fear of God quotient? How's that doing? You know, the higher your FQ is, the better. 
So we need to stay on our knees, reverently grateful daily for the salvation that God has given us and never becoming entitled, never becoming blasé about our own status. Everything that we have is a gift from God, is a gift of his grace. And then no complaining or arguing. And, you know, at the moment we might say, well, we've got a lot of reasons to complain. (laughs) But, you know, what I'd say on this is there's a difference between bringing your complaint to God in the way that Job or the psalmists do, which is good, expressing how you feel, lamenting before God. There's a difference between that and complaining. Complaining, which is a lot more um, faithless, if you like. We need to learn to bring our complaints to God, but still with faith, still trusting that he's good, still having a confession that you're Lord and I trust you even though what I'm going through is so difficult. Guys, I wanna say to you in all honesty, I can say that I, Owen O'Brien, have got nothing to complain about right now. I've done plenty of bringing my complaints to God. I've done plenty of talking to God about it and bringing it to him, but not in a way of complaining, not in a way of even kind of asking him to take it away. We have, to, we have to live with whatever life throws at us and we have to respond with faith. Living clean and innocent lives. You know, God has made us clean and innocent essentially through his, through his washing, through the spirit. And really, if you genuinely throw your life down, if you give your everything to God and you don't hold anything back, then there's no reason why your life won't be clean and innocent and therefore will shine like an example to others and finally hold firm to God's word you know sometimes that can be tested sometimes we can think well this ancient book is it really God's word it seems to be so unscientific it seems to be so old-fashioned you know what again we just need to hold firm to, to to this and remember that these are the words of God that have been handed down for us and that we need to feed on it it's living and active it's the thing that feeds us it's our daily bread Guys, I want to encourage you in the coming week to just hold on to God and to keep going. It's been good to be with you briefly and uh, God bless you and I hope to see you soon.